Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the U.S. election goes on and on and on. Joe Biden's in the lead. Uh, Donald Trump says he's going to challenge a potential Biden victory. We'll get the latest on that. Truck production will return to the General Motors plant in Oshawa. Unifor and the automaker have reached a tentative deal. We'll give you the details. And Ontario's government has refused to back a Commonwealth Games bid for Hamilton that's any time before 2027. Is the battle for the bid in jeopardy? We'll find out. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Anxiety is at uh, fever pitch in the United States right now. The uh, count continues, of course, in the presidential election. Most of the down ticket uh, races have already been decided, of course. Uh, But uh, it's the presidential race that has caught everybody's attention. Uh, And, of course, the slow vote count has caused an awful lot of frustration. Uh, It may be over today. Uh, We'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. But the uh, overriding concern here is uh, not just the frustration and the anxiety, but the misinformation uh, that's spreading, and a good deal of it coming from the White House. Sagar Magani reports. The president claims he was winning big in all the key states. And then our numbers started miraculously getting whittled away in secret. Standing at a White House podium, he said Democrats waited to find out how many votes they needed and then found them as he demanded the vote count stop. Each ballot must be counted. Joe Biden said the process is working, as it has for 240 years. He's urging Americans to stay calm. Sagar Magani, Washington. Well, let's uh, get right down to it and talk about what is happening and the implications of it. And uh, to that end, we are so pleased to welcome back to the program Claire Finkelstein, uh, Algernon Biddle Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for jumping in with us and uh, what is turning out to be a very long, not just election night, but election week. It sure is, and uh, it's an interesting and exciting one at that. Well, I, I want to talk about the numbers first, and then we can get into some of the uh, the, the rhetoric that's going on and, and some of the stuff from the White House and the, the demonstrations, et cetera, because it's turning into a pretty ugly scene. Uh and I want to address, if you could, a couple of the things that, uh, that Trump and others have brought up about this, about uh, illegal votes and, and, and mail-in votes. Uh, he, and he seems to conflate those two and said if it's a mail-in ballot, uh, that, uh, that it's illegal. Uh, and you heard his, his comments yesterday that if you just count the legal votes, he wins. Uh, sadly, there are a number of people right now that buy into that and, and think that's the truth. Well, he's really confused uh, the public, and, and he's done a terrible disservice. And I'm happy to see that a number of Republican leaders who have been very supportive of him, including Mitch McConnell, uh, have come out to say every vote needs to be counted. Uh, he said uh, two nights ago that he wanted to put a stop to the illegal voting, suggesting that the counting of already cast votes was actually a continuation of voting past Election Day. That is disinformation. That is completely false. Uh, and he knows it, too. Uh, his supporters, however, are confused by it. They are convinced that uh, the Biden team, the Democrats, are trying to steal the election. And a flurry of lawsuits have been filed. But um, most of them are, are completely frivolous. So there's no argument there. And the um, uh, fortunately, both state and federal judges are aware of that. Um, and so at the moment, uh, it doesn't look as though uh, the Trump team is going to be able to stop the counting of legally cast ballots that under state law are being counted exactly as they should be. 
to his phrase that they found ballots, uh, let me, if I could, ask your perspective on that as well uh, and, and the clarity, because I, I'm getting hate mail from people every time we talk about this as well. Uh, none of the ballots that are being counted were, were cast after closing time of, of the polls on Tuesday night. These are votes that, uh, that were cast by then. They were set aside because, uh, and we need to be clear about this, especially in places like Pennsylvania and Georgia and, uh, and Nevada, these are Republican state legislatures that set these rules. They were not Democrats, and they're the ones that said you can't start counting until after the polls close. That's exactly right. So, so let me explain the situation. In sure. my state, which is Pennsylvania, and all eyes are on Pennsylvania right now, mm-hmm. um, what happened was, uh, as you say, Republicans, the Republican-dominated legislature uh, passed a law saying you cannot start counting until Election Day. Uh, and that was a really uh, terrible thing to do because it cast the um, suspicion. It was bound to cast suspicion on absentee and mail-in ballots. What are those ballots? These are ballots that had to be postmarked by Election Day in order to be counted. But because of the timing of the mail, um, they take uh, they are allowed to come in for up to three days until six o'clock on Friday. Now, it, it's worth uh, noting that the military and overseas ballots have a week to come in. So that's until Tuesday. And that's not atypical. Most states have exactly the same provision and have always had it. Uh, they've always allowed more time to make sure that we're not disenfranchising our troops who are stationed overseas. Um, that's something that Republicans have been supportive of. So the suggestion that ballots that have been legally cast uh, and have been mailed and postmarked by Election Day uh, that are just being counted by the Republicans' own uh, rules uh, for up to three days afterwards and then a small number of ballots that are actually coming in by mail being received but have been postmarked by Election Day. Uh, the idea that this is somehow illegitimate really defies uh, the understanding of law, both in Pennsylvania and federal law, um, and our tradition and, and the common practices among the states. Another point that I want to talk about here, too, is, is oversight. Uh, and again, the idea that these ballots are just appearing out of nowhere. And I think you've addressed that, and I hope people understand exactly what's going on. But the vote counters, and you, you've seen this happen in, in, in Pennsylvania, Claire, over the last 24 hours. Uh, they're being intimidated. Um, um, you know, I, I know that the Trump people are saying, well, they put cardboard up to block the windows because people were actually threatening them uh, through the glass as they were counting the votes. That's all they're doing is counting votes. They're not doing anything else. But they seem to be victimized now by, by Trump supporters who all of a sudden are trying to create this illusion about fraud that's going on. Uh, as they're counting the votes, if there's a discrepancy with the vote, my understanding is there is a Republican and a Repo- and a Democrat observer there. Both of them get to look at the ballot and make a determination as to whether or not it's legal yet. Uh, and, and so this that's idea right. that nobody's watching is, is, is just a lie. They are there. And to our knowledge, from what you've heard, and I've been trying to watch the reporting on as many networks as I can, none of those observers have said there's anything wrong with the way the balloting's gone. Well, that's right. And there was an argument in, uh, in Pennsylvania yesterday regarding the litigation surrounding how close uh, Republican observers are allowed to be. Um, and the lawyer for the GOP um, had to admit in open court that, in fact, uh, Republicans are being allowed 
to that Trump campaign uh, observers are being allowed to observe uh, the voting. This is also uh, being uh, filmed. And I believe in some in some places live streamed so that yeah, you can actually the public can watch the voting uh, uh, counting going on. Um, and so it, it's interesting because this is a version of a lawsuit that's been filed now twice in Nevada. Uh, the claim that they cannot that the circumstances are such that they cannot openly observe the voting. Um, and um, it was previously thrown out by uh, a judge in Nevada. Um, so it's a variation of a of a familiar claim and debates over whether or not the observers, you know, can be six feet away as opposed to, you know, eight or 10 feet away. Um, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about Republican observers actually being shut out of the counting process. Uh, and again, with all this going on, it's caused, well, as we've talked about, a lot of discontent on the streets. Uh, the way the numbers are looking right now, and uh, as, as of, uh, well, 10.15 on Friday morning anyway, Claire, uh, Biden is now ahead, of course, in, in uh, Pennsylvania. He's ahead in Georgia. He's now ahead uh, more than he was in Nevada. Uh, he, by most accounts, only needs six more votes. He's probably going to get considerably more than that. At what stage can they actually make a determination that, yes, he is the president-elect? Well, let's, let's be clear. Um, if the lead holds in Pennsylvania and Georgia, that's it. Yeah. Uh, he does not need any more votes, so he does not need Nevada. Um, uh, so, in fact, and, and indeed, he does not need Georgia if he has Pennsylvania. Um, so there, this is very different from 2000, in which there are you know, multiple states here that have uh, razor-thin leads uh, for one candidate or another, uh, North Carolina being a lead for um, for Donald Trump, but is also uh, rather thin. So the trouble is right now, and this is, you know, I think that the legal battles around uh, the presumptive winner here, who is going to be Joe Biden, uh, are going to continue for a little while because at the moment, unless that changes once all the votes are in, are counted, um, Pennsylvania is in recount territory and so is Georgia. So there are likely to be recount. And Wisconsin. Uh, that's when, I'm sorry? And Wisconsin as well. And Wisconsin, there's going to be a recount. So yeah. there's going to be, there are going to be recounts. Now, um, recounts have in the past at most thrown the results, you know, a few hundred votes. And already Biden is over 5,000 votes ahead and a number of ballots from the Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia area which are overwhelmingly pro-Biden, have yet to be uh, counted and tabulated. And the same thing for Allegheny County in the western part of the state. And, and those uh, are heavily Democratic areas. So I think that Biden's lead will be much more significant after, you know, by the end of the day, and certainly by the time all the votes are counted. Um, who knows what will happen once all the military votes are counted? That could reduce the lead a little bit. Uh, traditionally, the military has come in more Republican, but possibly not this year. Not this military. Donald Trump has not been a great friend of the of the military. Um, now, there are some other areas of litigation uh, that we have to watch out for. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, there are there is litigation currently pending around 
the votes, the ballots that are coming in absentee and mail-in after Election Day uh, that are postmarked by Election Day. There are also there is also um, litigation regarding ballots that come in with no postmark. And those under state law are being allowed to count as though they had a postmark by Election Day. And so there'll be litigation over that. Uh, there's also litigation over what are called cured ballots that has to do with uh, mail-in or absentee ballots that had some kind of formal defect, like they weren't signed. And in several states, in, in Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, um, they were voters were contacted and allowed to come in and cure their ballots. But Republicans have filed several lawsuits against that. So we'll see how, how those end up. So, I mean, maybe the takeaway here is, look, it's it's going to be days uh, before the, they actually get through this and, and actually declare it. But to that point, uh, we also need to remind our, our listeners, I think, too, Claire, that uh, nobody is declared a winner on election night or even two or three days after. Those are simply projections by the TV networks. It's, That's what is correct. it, the second, second week of December, I think it is, is it, that they have to present, that is each state has to present their final totals? That's right. So December 14th is when the electors gather and and vote. Um, and there has to be a certification by the states prior to that. Now, we could end up in an issue in Pennsylvania, and this will be important to keep our eyes on, that um, the the certification under the Federal Electors Act, Electors Count Act, requires the executive, the head of the executive branch, to, for each state to certify the electors, and that would be the governor. So the governor of Pennsylvania would say, our, yes, our 20 electors went to Joe Biden. Um, however, um, uh, the re- Republican-led legislature in Pennsylvania may object to that and say voter fraud, voter fraud, to echo Donald Trump on this. Uh, and if that happens, they may actually sort of try to take over the certification process and say, you know, we're certifying a different slate of electors. That could really throw the country into chaos if indeed Pennsylvania, you know, Pennsylvania's 20 electors votes make the difference to the outcome here. But does that not have to be proof? You can't just claim voter fraud. Don't you have to show some evidence of it? Well, that's right. The question is how this would end up in the courts, of course. Um, the, the Republican legislature in Pennsylvania could try to, by legislation, pass legislation to override the governor and to say that we believe these are not the validly selected electors. Um, this did happen right after the Civil War in 1870, and two sets of electors uh, basically showed up in Washington uh, to claim victory. And the election got thrown to the House of Representatives, um, where they each state then gets one vote and would vote for uh, the next president of the United States. So uh, the potential for chaos is still there. The bigger the win on Joe Biden's part, the less likely that is to, to be able to occur. Still a lot to unpack here, and I guess uh, every time you think we're getting close to the end, uh, something else comes up. Uh, Claire, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for, for adding some clarity to a very puzzling situation, I think, for a lot of us. We really do appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.
Take care. Claire Fickelstein, of course, from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And it goes on. Um, and the, the reaction, of course, has been, has been visceral, as you might expect. Uh, on both sides, it's a very polarizing situation. But uh, we talked earlier, of course, about Donald Trump's rant yesterday, which, by the way, most of the major networks uh, broke away from as soon as he started claiming that he had won uh, the illegal ballots and everything else. And uh, email from Alexis here at bkelly at 900chml.com. Uh, I think pretty much uh, sums up uh, the feeling a lot of people had. If, also quoting from my favorite Shakespeare play from Macbeth, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That was Trump last night. Thank you for the email, Alexis. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With all the other stuff going on politically and pandemic-wise and everything else, uh, some good news uh, from General Motors in Oshawa. Global's Tina Trujani has the details. Today is an incredible victory for all of us. And with that, Jerry Diaz revealed GM would be making an investment of up to $1.3 billion in the plant to shift it from manufacturing parts back to building vehicles. And it will start hiring back some of its members next summer. We'll put into place a brand new body shop, a new assembly line. We'll fix up the paint shop. We will be a complete assembly operations once again. Silverados and Sierras will start rolling off the assembly line in January of 2022, and the Oshawa facility will become GM's only plant able to build heavy and light-duty trucks, the company's best-selling vehicles. Now, the work on revamping the plant would start once the three-year deal is ratified by some 1,700 workers in Oshawa, St. Catharines, and Woodstock, and they'll vote on that this weekend. Tina Trajani, Global News. Boy, what a difference a year and a half or so makes. Uh, this is a, a huge, huge uh, uh, turnaround since what uh, we found out when they were going to close the Oshawa plant. Joining us to talk about all this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Marvin, thanks for jumping on today. Appreciate the time. Glad to be with you, Bill. Uh, what uh, I don't know what they're paying Jerry Dyes these days, but whatever it is, it doesn't seem to be enough. He's uh, pulled another one out of the fire. He did the Ford plant in Oakville. Uh, and all of a sudden, we've got op- or, 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 what, what's happening in Oshawa now right. with the General Motors plant. What is, what is happening, Marvin? Well, well, can I say this? You know, there's now been three negotiations. They started at Ford, then they went to Chrysler, and they ended with GM. I wasn't necessarily shocked by the, the achievements at either Ford or Chrysler. Uh, what basically those two companies announced was that they were planning to make a big move into electric vehicles and that they were going to include Canada in their plans. And I was glad to hear that, and I also wasn't surprised that he had sort of coordinated dance that also required the federal government to put in some money, but that is consistent with their green energy policies, what have you. After he finished with Chrysler and went to GM, I thought, now, what magic can he do here? Because GM had, had basically said they were turning their backs on Canada. They still had a plant <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in Ingersoll. They still were doing some things in St. Catharines, but... Boy, in Oshawa, where they'd had more than 2,000 employees, they were down to 300. They were making some parts. They were going to use the test track, and they were going to do some R&D efforts. But a year, a year, a little over a year and a half ago, they said, that's it. We're done with Canada. And I thought, well, what's he going to pull out of his hat here? And to hear that not only has he been able to get uh, agreements from General Motors to invest in both uh, Woodstock and in St. Catharines, but he's got them to reverse their policy on Oshawa, and they are going to start building vehicles there again. Also, interestingly, none of this requires federal money. They're not electric vehicles. They're going to build the um, Silverado, and there's another Chevy product, another kind of truck product. But they're going to be doing them in Oshawa. They're going to have a paint facility, an assembly facility, and they're going to begin immediately with the hope of having these vehicles come off the assembly line in 2021, 2022, 
that is just that is just absolutely incredible. I again, I'm not sure how much credit I give totally to Jerry Diaz. What has changed at GM? I'd really love to have an official there explain to us how their policy has changed 180 degrees in a year and a half. Well, I know that uh, there was a conference call with uh, GM CEO Mary Barra. Uh, and she basically, and she talked about the Silverado and the GMC Sierra, the ones they're going to be doing in Oshawa, uh, and said that they're going to be full shifts, they're going to be operating around the clock. They said they can't build these things fast enough, which begs the question, what recession? I mean, you know, these are not uh, inexpensive vehicles, but no. apparently they can't keep up with the demand. They're not inexpensive vehicles, and they're also not necessarily the world's most fuel-efficient vehicles. So they do take, you know, when you go to the pump and have to fill them up, it's a, a $70 fill, an $80 fill. Uh, you know, uh, everything I had heard, again, given the state of the economy right now, people were having tough times getting things going through. This doesn't seem to be the time that you'd be selling those kind of vehicles. So, uh, you know, again, absolutely incredible. And I guess, you know, there's an old expression, Bill, that we should light a candle rather than curse the darkness. Maybe I shouldn't ask too many questions here about what has changed and why has changed and just for the moment bask in the glow of this tremendous news. If I lived in those three communities, Woodstock, St. Catharines and Oshawa, this is a much sunnier day uh, when I woke up this morning than I thought it was going to be. And, and to your point, I mean, there's one thing to say, okay, there's a demand there. And, that, and, and again, that's kind of a shock, but it's there. Uh, and, and if Maravera says that's what's happening, then that's what's happening. But I would have thought, yeah, and you know what, we're going to have to build another plant down in Kentucky or someplace. I'm surprised that they decided to look north of the border again. Yes. Now, let's keep in mind that the Canadian dollar is still in a tremendous advantage. We're trading in and around 75 cents U.S., which means uh, uh, it takes a dollar 33 uh, Canadian to buy a U.S. dollar. That does give us a, a price competitiveness. Mind you, I would also say to you, not really that much has changed in a year and a half. The dollar was about the same point in mid-2019. If this was something on your horizon, why did you put the community through all of this? and put those workers through all this. Keep in mind, again, they went from a workforce of over 2,000 people down to 300, so they laid off, terminated a number of those people. Many of those people have now found work elsewhere. And now you say, okay, we're, we're going to reopen things over the next couple of years. We want you to come back. What, a, what a really a waste of time that is, and, and in terms of everything, you have to retrain all of these people, get them up to speed. If they're new employees, get them to understand what's going on. It doesn't really seem like long-term planning. So something has changed. I just don't know what it is. And um, hopefully hopefully, maybe one day Mary Barrow will come out and let us know, is there something, for instance, with the U.S. government? Maybe they were GM was caving into a U.S. first policy under Trump, and now that maybe his term as president is coming to an end, maybe they feel they can do more in Canada. Something's changed. Uh, the GM that we're hearing about today is not the GM of 2019, and isn't it great that Jerry Diaz was able to take advantage of that? Uh, and again, if you're watching your dollars and cents, and I think every business is, including folks in the auto industry, uh, if they are going to ramp up production, and that clearly seems to be the motive here, uh, would it not make more sense to go to where there are already existing plants? All these places you've talked about, St. Catharines, Woodstock, and of course in Oshawa, uh, they own that stuff already. Uh, it's, you know, so it's just a matter of getting the machinery up. I mean, they may have to do some upgrades, but it, it's got to be a lot less expensive than trying to build something brand new somewhere else. Yes, and in particular with Oshawa, although they've had a footprint in Oshawa since I think it's 19, either 1908 or 1918, 
So, you know, 100 years footprint, but there's a lot of land there. There's a lot of flexibility, and if you do need to do some new construction, it's going to be very easy for you to do. You don't need to acquire new land, and you can work within some things. Uh, Jerry Diaz pointed out, and this was also a key part of his negotiations in 2019 as they were closing, that rather than tear down facilities, some of them were being mothballed. So Oshawa, for instance, had a world-class state-of-the-art uh, painting facility so that you could paint vehicles, paint doors, paint assemblies, whatever you needed to paint. And although it wasn't, has not been used for the last year and a half, it was mothballed, which means it doesn't take that much to bring it back online. So, again, uh, great kudos to him. And I think it's also interesting that this does not involve the federal government or the provincial government putting money into this. Not saying that they won't eventually. And I think, again, uh, I would like to hear a little more about their plans for this plant in the latter half of this decade, i.e. 2025 to 2029, because, again, I think electric vehicles, even in trucks, are going to start to become more prevalent. Will this work they're doing in Oshawa morph into those electric vehicles? I'd love to hear a little more about that. But, again, I'm not asking too many questions today. I'm just joining the celebration. No, absolutely, and and you have to wonder about that. I mean, you know, GM has to to get into the 21st century. I mean, I I know they've got the Chevy Volt, but I mean, you know, we've heard just about every other uh, automotive maker right now moving in that direction. I mean, even the Hummer has a, 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 a electric car now, an electric engine, uh, and and of course, yeah, as you mentioned, that's already uh, what what. Ford is doing and where Chrysler is doing with their Canadian operations at this stage. Uh, and and your point's well taken. I know a lot of people that drive these sorts of trucks, and uh, uh, you're right, it takes about a week's salary to fill the gas tank in one of these things, and they've got to be thinking that way. But uh, I would think that if they're going to be building these things here, the technology would follow with them. Uh, and a lot of that stuff, of course, is already being developed, that sort of technology for those those transfer of, of I mean, they can bake a Sierra with an electric engine. I, I, I don't know how far down the road they are but I know that work is ongoing. Right. Well, just I know it's not really on topic, Bill, but just to go switch for a second to the Hummer. So the Humvee, we all remember this. This was a vehicle that was first designed for the American government. Then they started making versions of it for the consumer, and then they stopped doing it. They discontinued it. Big news this year was that they were going to bring it back as an all-electric vehicle. Uh, starts to be released for sale at the end of 2021. Most of the Humvees that you'll see out there, electric, are going to be released in 2022. It was just two weeks ago that uh, GM opened a website where you could go and pre-order one of these vehicles. Now, you didn't have to put much money down. You only had to put $100 down to hold your pre-ordering space. But the cost of this all-electric Hummer in U.S. dollars, I need to remind you, these are U.S. dollars, $112,500 for one of these. And guess what? They opened the website. They had to shut it down after 15 minutes because they'd sold out the entire run of vehicles they had planned to make. So there's clearly an interest in not only bigger vehicles, but electrified bigger vehicles. Um, and that Hummer, that may actually have just been a, an experiment on their part, but the response has been so great. I can't help but think in the latter half of the decade that we're in that we'll see more of that. And I'm hoping, again, that GM will be part of it. Can I just also say, Bill, that this deal with GM, just like Ford, just like Chrysler, covers the next three years. So it starts in 2020, and it'll end at some point in 2023. There's still plenty of time in the next round of negotiations to make more of this tangible. In fact, I thought it was interesting with both the Ford and Chrysler deal, nobody was really talking about the success over the next three years. They were just focused so much on the deal that they had made for after that time period, 
So there's still plenty of time to get the GM to the table and talk about the latter half of this decade. Well, sure, and I, I think we have to credit Arnold Schwarzenegger, by the way, for the Humvee stuff. I mean, I, you remember, I, I remember you and I having this discussion when he was still governor of California. He, he made a trip over here to Ontario and talked to, I think it was the Ontario and the Canadian Chambers of Commerce and about the automotive industry. And at that time, he drove a Hummer, but it was a hybrid. Uh, and I, I probably the only one they made, but they made it for him because obviously, you know, with, with all the other stuff that Schwarzenegger did, he was a pretty strong environmentalist to move mm-hmm. California very much in that direction. Uh, but he said, he says, I've had those discussions with General Motors and the other automakers too. And he says, you know, you can demand that this is what they need to do. You somehow have to push them in that direction. But clearly they're, they're starting to get the message on that now. And, and other governments, I think, are following suit. If that happens, let me speculate for just a second. Sure. So, so they're going along here and they, we're in year two or three or whatever it is and they're making lots of Sierras and, and, and Silverados and they wouldn't just great. How difficult would it be to transition and say, okay, we're going to start making these electric? Well, I don't, I don't think it would be that difficult. Now, the, the engine itself is quite different. So a gas-fired oh, sure. engine, it has a whole other configuration than an electrically driven engine. So if we're talking about an engine fabrication plant, uh, and for instance, the General, uh, Chrysler had one of those or has one of those in Windsor, yes, that would be quite a different technology, and you'd have to do a certain amount of work to transition away from one kind of an engine to another. But once you have the engine, the drivetrain, the, the, you know, the way you do the chassis, those sorts of things would remain pretty constant. Uh, Bill, I, can I also just note that these new vehicles, uh, to make electric vehicles, one of the keys is you've got to have them be as light as you possibly can. Now, that might lead you to think that there's going to be a lot of demand for aluminum, and certainly today there's a lot of aluminum in new vehicles. But our companies, Stelco and DeFasco, are also working with the big three automotive people and, for that matter, McMaster's Automotive Research Center to talk about ultra-thin steel and ultra-light steel and make sure that those things are incorporated in that next round of technology to know that the big three car companies have made a commitment to stay in Ontario and to stay in Canada and keep making vehicles hill, that's great news because our research and development people will also be able to work with them to position our industries, our other flagship industries, so that they're still relevant in the latter half of this decade. Well, there's a group, because I, I remember interviewing these guys. I mean, they're from the engineering department of McCarthy University, and they, they did not develop, actually, it's an award-winning uh, project, a, a lightweight uh, Camaro, which, of course, was a muscle car back in its day. Uh, but they basically brought it into the 21st century and, and it made it lighter. And of course, obviously, it was energy efficient because of of, of the electric as, as opposed to the, uh, the the gas engine in the sort of thing. So, I mean, the technology is there. Uh, it's just a matter of whether or not the market's going to be there. But clearly, uh, the other guys seem to think that it's already there as yeah, far as, the, as demand. I'll just, I'll just say again, Bill, and I'm not an expert in engineering. I'm not an expert necessarily in cars. But the concern had been that as you tried to come up with these more fuel-efficient vehicles or make them lighter so that electrifying them uh, makes sense, there'd be more use of plastics, there'd be more use of aluminum, and less use of the traditional steel. If you can think of the cars of the 1960s, they were just so much steel in them. They were so much steel kind of in the construction. And the fear was that maybe our Stelco, maybe our DeFasco might get left behind. But they're not being left behind. Those companies are also working to keep their products relevant here in the 21st century. And so I think that would be harder for Stelco and DeFasco to be connected to that if the car industry moved completely south of the border, or at least if all the research and development moved south of the border. The fact that those big three companies have made a commitment to be here, and then let's also give credit to people like 
Toyota and, and Nissan, what have you, they're, they've now got assembly plants here, and they're investing in R&D here as well. I just think it bodes well for everybody. It's not just the car industry. This is also a great day in Hamilton, because I think it's going to reinforce our steel companies uh, as we head into the next couple of decades. Yeah, you're right. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here with the speculation about what could happen with the transitions, et cetera. But, you know, the, the takeaway here is that Oshawa is, is coming back uh, full capacity with lots of jobs going to be there. And as you mentioned, that's going to be good news for uh, people uh, in this area, especially because of steel. And also, of course, uh, down London Way through Ingersoll. Uh, and through Woodstock as well because of the employment that's going to happen there. That that cami plant there, every time I used to drive by there uh, on our way to London, I mean, you'd figure, boy, I hope this thing, you know, there, there were times there where I thought, boy, that, that lot was full, and I said, nobody's buying these things. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be nice. Ingersoll ne- needs this too. It's good news for everybody. It's, it's a great shot in the arm. And so first, again, kudos to Jerry Diaz. He's gone into these negotiations. He had an endpoint in mind, and he's been able to achieve them. But kudos also to the companies he negotiated with. Yep. Clearly, he was able to share his view. They shared their view. They found common ground. Great example of how the negotiating process does not have to end in strikes and lockouts and, and fighting on both sides. In this case, three very peaceful very successful negotiations. I think this one's going to be ratified like the two before it, with great outcomes for everybody all the way around. It, collective bargaining can work, and it can work brilliantly. Well, it seems to have worked this time. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you today. Have a great well, weekend. Thank you. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder, of course, from uh, the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With all the uh, government news coming out of uh, Queen's Park over the last couple of days, uh, some bad news, potential bad news anyway, for the city of Hamilton. Uh, the uh, Ontario government has suggested that they will not uh, offer financial funding for Hamilton's bid for the 2026 Commonwealth Games. The Minister of Tourism, Culture and Sport, Lisa McLeod, says the government will seek to land World Cup 2026 and will engage with the Commonwealth Games Federation for, as she says, a potential Ontario bid in 2027. Here's the minister. That means, yes, we will work with Soccer Canada to land a bid for FIFA in 2026 for the World Cup. And we're also going to be engaging with the Commonwealth Games Federation for a potential Ontario bid in 2027 or beyond. Yeah, well, the bad news about that is is that uh, the Commonwealth Games are scheduled for 2026, not 2027, and there are reasons why uh, they would be reticent to try to move that date into the next year. Joining us to uh, shed some light on this is uh, Lou Forporti, who is a spokesperson for the Hamilton uh, bid for the uh, the Commonwealth Games. Uh, Lou, thanks for jumping in today. Appreciate your time. Delighted to be here, Bill. Thanks for your interest. Well, we knew this was coming because the minister had hinted at this, or at least one of her spokespeople did a couple of days ago. Uh, is is this a final no as far as you're concerned? Well, no, and, and um, I, I can appreciate why you might have presented it this way. I, I noted uh, Donna Spencer's uh, uh, reporting on this uh, as reflecting a stalling of the bid, and, and, and frankly, I don't see any of it that way, and I'm delighted to share some news yeah, about, uh, about this that I think puts an entirely different spin on it. Um, I'm actually uh, having had calls this morning with the Federation and Commonwealth Sport Canada and city staff separately, as we do every week. We're all feeling very buoyed, and, and let me explain to you why. We understand what the uh, the minister said on Friday. It uh, uh, was said um, previously, but everybody, I think, needs to reflect on on uh, where we started and where where we've come. 
Bill, I think as you'll remember, because you, uh, God bless you, have been interested in reporting on this from the beginning when we were invited to consider the pivot um, to accelerate the delivery of benefits owing to the pandemic. I think most felt that it was an impossible ask, uh, that we weren't going anywhere with this effort. There was, uh, I think, confusion about whether it could be done. Uh, and in the span of, uh, of these few months, uh, in the face of everything that uh, we're all experiencing through the pandemic, we've made remarkable progress, including the fact that the provincial government is now directly engaged in a conversation with the Federation and with us on accelerating the delivery of the Commonwealth Games prior to 2030 in Ontario. And who could have imagined that? Uh, in addition to that, you know, we've, we've had federal government support. Um, we've done an enormous amount behind the scenes and quietly in terms of positioning this conversation. And the Federation and Commonwealth, sorry, the Federation and the province of Ontario are now in the middle of active dialogue and the exchange of information and discussion around the games. And that to me uh, is remarkable progress in very difficult circumstances uh, in a challenging time for everybody. So it's going to take time. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done and discussion to be had, and I'm not sure where it's going to end up at the day, at the end of the day. But, um, but frankly, we're extremely pleased with with how much progress we've made. There's interesting uh, wordsmithing that's going on here, and, and you're right. I mean, I'm going some, from some of the reporting on some of the reports I've seen in the last 48 hours on this one, uh, in particular, Lou, uh, where they say, for instance, uh, the uh, Commonwealth Games Federation is not currently willing to alter its schedule to accommodate 2027 games. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the headline. Uh, then it says there has been no formal request by that federation to change. So in other words, they're not saying we don't want to. They're just saying nobody's asked us to officially. Right. You know, and it's it's great of you to point that out. It's true. Uh, I think if folks were to step back for a moment and appreciate that this is an incredibly complicated and challenging undertaking by any metric, whether the, the, the number of parties, nations, the investments, um, the planning that would be required, and to do this all as pandemic relief in a time of pandemic is an incredibly difficult proposition. So there is going to be, um, you know, a degree of uncertainty, clearly some back and forth, something this significant and transformative takes time. And the parties have not had a, a fulsome opportunity to exchange all the information that's going to be required. So folks uh, who are reporting on it obviously have a job to do and, and they create narratives and perspectives which reflect an opinion. Uh, but in reality, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and I think in saying that as somebody who is probably more involved than anybody else in all of this, uh, I'm, I'm very, very pleased and optimistic about the progress that we've made and, and uh, know that there's an enormous amount of work to be done in, in the weeks and months ahead. But I feel that we're uh, on the right trajectory. And to their credit, I guess, as much as they've said, look, we can't do anything in 2026 for the, the Hamilton bid, uh, they're open to working on 2027. Uh, in other words, just not 2026. They said, obviously, they're going to be focused on FIFA and, and the World Cup. And uh, what is it, four games, I think, Lou, that, uh, that Toronto's trying to grab for this? Yeah, you know, three or four. Uh, there are 10 games that are going to be in Canada uh, for the World Cup, uh, Edmonton, Toronto, and Montreal are competing for them. They're all in the very first or initial rounds. Um, and I, I know I can tell you as well, there's so many things to talk about, actually, Bill, here, uh, given the recent developments beyond what you've seen. Uh, the Federation has had dialogue directly with FIFA now, which has been communicated to the province, uh, which, frankly, we didn't expect. The Federation had invited. We didn't necessarily anticipate that FIFA would actually respond, but they have. Uh, and last week, they uh, they responded to the Federation to acknowledge the magnitude of the opportunity for the province of Ontario in hosting both events in 26, 
uh, and making clear that they had no opinion on the matter, that they felt that it was entirely up to the citizens and government of the province of Ontario to make a decision about the hosting of both events um, uh, in, in, in 26. Uh, and that is more than we might have expected in the circumstances. So that's a development of some interest, I think. It's an encouraging one, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And there have been a variety of other interactions with with the province, uh, developments with different municipalities that we haven't talked about publicly, but are very, very interesting. Well, which runs contrary to a a, a story that actually you and I talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago now, uh, that there was a report out of Toronto that suggested that FIFA was actually pressuring the Ontario government uh, to say, if if you're going to do the Commonwealth Games bid, then we're not going to play any games in Toronto. Uh, clearly, from what you're telling me now, that was never the case. I don't know whether it was or not. I don't know. Or, if, or maybe if it was, they backed down, obviously. Uh, all I can speak to is the communication that FIFA has provided to the Federation, which, which we view in a very optimistic way. Um, you know, these are massive institutions that are global. There are so many people that I, I couldn't presume to speak to what was said to whom. All I can uh, tell you and your listeners is what has been communicated to the, uh, the Federation directly, and, and we've appreciated the fact that FIFA has communicated that. In, in the end, uh, everybody is well-intentioned, wanting to do the best for the region and for our province, and, and there are so many people now working on this and trying to figure it out. I think it's just a question of having patience and letting that process unfold. So is there a, a preference here at this stage, Lou? I mean, you know, because they keep talking about you know, maybe maybe putting this off for a year. And I, I understand that there are some logistical problems even with that. Uh, the World Track and Field Championships go on in 2027. And, of course, uh, you know, the, if they, they don't like to run these major events, uh, you know, in, in the same neighborhood simply because of the concern about, you know, the impact that they're going to have. And I understand that, too. But uh, as we talked about when I think you and I had this first discussion, I've, these are different times. Uh, in, in, a, in an ordinary time, they'd say, hell no, we're never going to move the games. They're going to go in 2026. That's, that's all there is to it. But every sporting event, every event of any magnitude, as a matter of fact, have had to pivot because of what's happening with COVID. And, and we'll likely continue to pivot. I think most of us are discouraged at the fact that the pandemic, maybe not shockingly, but is persisting longer than we had hoped and continues to disrupt. And, and, and although we hope not, that may continue for uh, a period of time. And who knows what the next months uh, will bring, Bill, uh, and what impact they may have on all of this. But I would direct people to Minister McLeod's speech on Friday. We're going to try to put it up on our website. Uh, in which she talked about the importance of sport, tourism, et cetera, to pandemic recovery and, and, and to the province. And it's within the context of that speech, of course, that she mentioned the Commonwealth Games as being key to that. And so when you have a, a provincial minister talking about, essentially about Hamilton and a transformative initiative here that has such promise, that's an incredibly encouraging development. We are not in this region talked about by the province or federal government or others as the center of something transformative for this country. We are in that conversation, and I choose to feel very, very good about that. You know, some people see only difficulty where there's opportunity, and other people see opportunity where there's difficulty. And we're in the latter camp, and we're going to be happy warriors, continue to work, but with an enormous amount of positivity, and, and, and we're hopeful as to where it all ends up in the end. Well, and I know that there have been face-to-face conversations, too. I mean, you're not just reading press releases from Queen's Park. There have been some uh, discussions, uh, even with the Premier, I'm told, but uh, with some of the principals involved in this uh, to get the lay of the land. Uh, maybe not, you know, those those conversations may not be for public consumption as of yet, but uh, I would think that that would give you a little more confidence to actually understand exactly what the Premier is thinking, what the Minister is thinking. Right, and so, of course, I'm involved in, in all of that, and what I'm saying to you is that those meetings are in process. 
uh, and everybody is is thoughtful and well intentioned and constructive. Um, and of course, this is what we would expect from from uh, you know our public servants and, and those of us that are involved in the process. Uh, and I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. It's complicated. It's it's enormous in its magnitude, and it's going to take time. Um, and everybody needs to be patient about that, and, and it will end up uh, where it'll end up. But I, I would say this, and this is uh, a development, I think, of considerable interest. You know, we, in the last few weeks, have been having discussions with the Federation and cricket authorities, both in India and in Canada, uh, around the meddling of elite men's cricket as part of the Commonwealth Games. This has not happened, and the implications of this are massive for, for North America. It's much like the NHL uh, being meddled in the Olympics or the NBA. Um, the uh, global cricket authorities, and you'll appreciate cricket is a massive, massive sport uh, in, in terms of draw and, and uh, money, candidly, especially in Asia, uh, England, Australia. And um, there is significant interest in aligning um, international men's cricket with the Commonwealth Games as a medal sport. I've met with uh, Mayor Patrick Brown in Brampton and, and city staff there, cricket authorities in India. We've had discussions with the Federation. And earlier this week, I met with Minister Pramit Sakaria, who is the Minister of Small Business, um, but from the Brampton region and, and very passionate about the importance of, of cricket. If we were to be able to organize this and to land cricket, uh, we're talking about an event that would secure more viewership than the Super Bowl by far, and the financial implications for that for Ontario uh, w- would be massive. So that's an exciting development that we're all interested to working through. There'll be more in time. It just needs time to unfold. Well, and I don't need to remind you, but I, I remind our listeners that uh, I, I know that uh, on, a, on a global scale, cricket, of course, is an incredibly popular sport. Uh, and it is in southern Ontario, too. There is a, yeah. a very, very passionate and very loyal uh, following of cricket uh, to the point where I know, uh, well, some radio stations actually give out cricket scores. I mean, because they say, hey, we need to know. I mean, they love to play it. They love to watch it. And uh, it, it, it would be a real coup if that was incorporated into the bid. We think so, too. And we're excited to pursue that. So where are you now in these discussions? I, and, and again, you know, you've been very candid about where we, you know, what we need to do here. Uh, the Federation and the province, we're told, are talking. You're talking to both sides right now. Uh, is, is there a move afoot now to try to make 2026 work, or are we looking at alternatives here? Look, or is, well, there, or is everything, on the, everything on the table here? Yeah, look, from my perspective, uh, we move forward with creating and exchanging information around the critical importance of the games before 30 um, for pandemic relief and for all the reasons that we've discussed in the past. The Federation and the province are speaking about these issues directly, and that conversation is going to continue over the next few weeks. They've got meetings scheduled, and I'm not going to prejudge uh, where that all ends uh, at the end of the day. We'll be patient about that. We won't be going back to Hamilton City Council until or unless the Federation, the province, and federal government all come to an agreement on when the game should be held, if they should be held. And it's at that point when there is clarity that we'll come back um, to um, to our municipal government here to provide them with that information and to seek their input. And I can't prejudge how long that's going to take, Bill. Um, given all that's going on, who could say? But everybody's at the table talking in a constructive way. And I couldn't have imagined that we'd all be here a few months ago, given what's going on. So I'm I'm optimistic about that. 
but there were some concerns about time frame, uh, and and I know you've expressed that. But when we talked to the federation, uh, they've also said the same thing. Now they put some arbitrary deadlines, and of course those have all come and gone because of the circumstances that have happened since then. But is are you concerned about that, and is the federation concerned that there's going to have to be a decision sooner than later on this? I'm not concerned about that, and and I'll, I'll tell you why. A couple of reasons. Number one, um, the world is upside down. You know, there's even talk that the Olympics may have to be moved again. Uh, who knows what the next year will bring? And everybody needs to appreciate that that uncertainty, however uncomfortable, uh, means that fixed and certain deadlines are impractical and, and frankly senseless. Um, so there is a flexibility. Number two, this isn't a bid. And so in, in the end, given the modesty of the infrastructure that we're looking to build in order to keep costs down and to focus on housing, um, we have the luxury of whenever there is agreement, if there is agreement, to be able to commit only to those things that can be delivered. And so if things have to be further modified uh, in terms of their, their size to bring them down to ensure that they're available, we can do that. We can move events to different parts of the province in order to reduce the need to construct facilities if they won't be ready. So there's enormous flexibility. I'm not at all concerned from my perspective as to the time that it takes. I think everybody just needs to be thoughtful and careful. And however long it takes, it takes. Uh, Lou, we'll stay in touch with you on this. this is a very, very important uh, topic, and uh, I, I concur with you totally. I mean, if we're going to talk about economic recovery, I think we need to talk about projects of this magnitude. And uh, as soon as we get some clarity on this, certainly I know we'll have you back on to talk about this. Thanks so much for this today. Bill, thank you, and, th and thank you for your interest and how constructive and thoughtful you are in, in reporting on this. It's greatly appreciated. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Lou Forporti, of course, spokesperson for the Hamilton Commonwealth Games bid. Uh, and it's not over yet. Uh, we'll see what the uh, latest developments are. We'll certainly bring those to you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.